Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you to receive the holy word of your food. Father, satisfy us with your glory, with your provision. May we see Jesus anew for those who have been walking with Jesus for decade after decade. They may they see in the word of God proclaimed, may they see Jesus newer and deeper and may their emotions and love for Jesus peak. Father, for those this morning who don't know Jesus or have been watching Jesus at a distance, intrigued by his words, his influence, but not sure whether they can trust him, I pray that their words uh, that are spoken today would be used by your Spirit to give them eyes to see and hearts to love Jesus. Father, we need you. As we sang earlier, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. We need your good shepherd to rein us in and keep us close to you. And provide for us and comfort us with your rod and your staff. Father, we live in a world that is hurting. We have the privilege of coming together with our brothers and sisters and shouldering those burdens together. But there is a world that is stumbling in the darkness that does not know the light. May we be a light bold in the darkness. Father, as we have been watching these last days and weeks, we see the nation of China. Billions of people live in China that have never heard the name of Jesus. And as we watch the numbers of the coronavirus begin to accumulate and the death toll to rise, we know that hundreds are dying without knowing the name of Jesus. Father, embolden the hearts of the millions of our brothers and sisters who are in the underground church who know and have tasted the soul-satisfying, life-giving, joy-infusing bread of Jesus. May they give it to their dying brothers. Proclaim it in a world, in a society that does not know Jesus. That they may come to know the King of Kings, the Ancient of Days. Father, we pray for the Chinese government, CDC, WHO, for the unnamed, untold doctors and nurses that are throughout the provinces of China that are working and serving. I pray that you would embolden them and you would protect them. My, may your grace lead them to a remedy, an antidote to this virus. Lord, empower your church with the gospel that they would love their neighbor well by telling them where they can find the bread of life and a water that will satisfy them. Father, open our eyes that we would see Jesus as your word is proclaimed and as we go forth 
and tell the world what Christ has done for us, how he has shown us mercy. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 8. We're coming to a pivotal point in the book where the first half of the book is closing. Uh, a hinge, we'll, we'll see Mark's confession or uh, Peter's confession, but we come to the last section of the first half of the book. I'm talking about the signs that are, are demanded by the people. Now, I have so enjoyed the book of Mark, and I have learned new things about Jesus that I have never seen, and I, I pray that you have been the same. Uh, this week, as I was um, exercising, I get my Spotify, and I peruse and find something that is good um, exercise music. And, and so I stumbled ac across a group that I love. Uh, it's called Beautiful Eulogy. And Beautiful Eulogy, some of you will probably be surprised, they are a Christian rap group, okay? Um, some of you are like, really, rap? You can put Christian to it? It's not the filth that's out there, but I have come to appreciate the beauty and the art of the spoken word, whether in poetry, people like Preston and Jackie Hill Perry, um, people like Joseph Solomon, uh, and then people like Beautiful Eulogy who are able to make beautiful music the power of the words that they use are incredible. And I'm like, if only somebody who I could just have that ability as somebody who makes a living talking to listen to these artists as they proclaim beautifully and richly and deeply the word of God through their art. Now, this is a, a song that I, I was listening to. I was probably doing some bench press, three, 400 pounds, just a light day. Um, yeah. And uh, this is called a uh, song called Signs and Symbols. It's by, uh, uh, in Beautiful Eulogy, a guy named Odd Thomas. I don't know where he got the name. He's probably Odd. But, is it? Okay, there you go. Lori's Odd. But he, this is his, his part. He says, yep. Are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs? And if you are, that's fine. But don't you find it interesting that most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desire? Seems rather convenient, isn't it? I'm not saying that God can't do it. Not saying that God won't do it. That might very well be the case. I'm simply making an observation of how much weight you place on it, what seems to be at stake, and how much of your faith is actually banking on it, how much of your mysticism is mixed with your religious philosophic system. How many times do you say, the Lord gave me a sign, and it might have been a voice, it might have been a leaf, it might have been a tingle in your belly, Maybe that was the taco you ate the night before, or it was the Holy Spirit, but you're not sure. But you put this great weight in this sign that you received. If you're, you are not alone, if you have looked to signs to validate the will and the word of God. But you may not be alone in the fact that your sign is a sign of your spiritual blindness a sign of your spiritual blindness. 
because the very thing that you need the most is right in front of you, but all you can see and all that you're looking for is signs and symbols to um, validate what you already desire. This morning, as we come to the text in Mark chapter 8, that's the very thing that's happening. Um, This is what, and I forgot about this, sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a fluke. A series of events that used to distract us from the truth. And I apologize, I should have put a break between that. I want you to know today is that you may see all these random things in the universe and believe that you have a sign from God. But the thing you really need is Jesus. And you can't see it because you're spiritually blind. And today we're going to see two groups of people that were spiritually blind. They couldn't see the very thing they needed the most. Because as I want you to present you today, spiritual blindness presents us from embracing what we need the most. What the Pharisees needed the most was standing in front of them and they were antagonizing him. And what the disciples needed the most was in the boat and all they could think about is what they were having for lunch. Why? Because of spiritual blindness. And I want to present to you today that the remedy to spiritual blindness is the touch of Jesus. The remedy to spiritual blindness is the touch of Jesus. So I want to look in three parts of what we're doing is that spiritual blindness hardens our hearts. Spiritual blindness focuses us on the wrong thing. And then ultimately, the cure to spiritual blindness is the touch of Jesus. The touch of Jesus. Let's notice our first point, the hardness, uh, spiritual blindness, hardness your heart in verse 11 through 13. At first, when I went through this, sometimes it's hard as a pastor to to figure out what you're going to preach. Some pastors that I had been reading took 11 and 13 and stuck it with the other one. Some pastors stuck it with this one. I wasn't sure what to do with the blind man, but I realized actually all of these are coming together. And in in fact, they're actually a part of a larger mosaic that Mark is assembling these tiles together bit by bit, textures, colors, arrangements. He's putting them together so that when we look closely at the tiles, we see beauty and we see that, oh, that's interesting. But then when we step back, we see this magnificent picture of Jesus, who he is and what he has done and how we need to respond. The first thing we look closely at this tile this morning is probably a dark tile, an ugly tile, a tile that you look at and say, I don't want that as the backsplash of my kitchen. That's ugly. And that's the spiritual pride of the hearts of the Pharisees. Notice in verses 11 through 15, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him what? A sign from heaven to test him. Or, the other time that that word appears in Mark, to tempt him as Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Same word. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And, let, um, and Jesus left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Have you ever read a text like this when they're demanding a sign and Jesus is like, why are these people demanding a sign? Have you ever thought about, for those of you who we've been trooping through the book of Mark, have you ever thought about what happened in the last two chapters? Jesus has fed the 5,000. Jesus has walked on water. Jesus has healed the sick and the lame. Jesus has cast out unclean spirits from the, 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 the uh, Seraphonician's little girl. He's healed the deaf men. And then, to top it all off, he, he, he fed another 4,000 people. And then um, the, the Pharisees are still, give us a sign. So you're not understanding the words that are coming out of my mouth. And actually here, there's a difference between the mighty works that Jesus is doing to be able to articulate and demonstrate his power. They're the word dunamis. And you can hear, hear dynamite, mighty works of power. Dynamite explodes and you're like, that's powerful. Jesus is doing these things and we're looking at him and Jesus is powerful. But now the Pharisees come to him and say, we realize that you're powerful. We realize that you are the kind of person that when the disciples were in the boat were filled with great fear and they said to another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this that even a legion of demons fall at the feet of Jesus? Who is this that disease and illness and fever and sickness flee at the sound of his voice? Who is this? And the Pharisees say, hey, we need a sign. We need to demonstrate. But we laugh at this and we, we think, gosh, these people are dense. But remember, we have already seen in another tile, in another place in Mark chapter 3, how the scribes came down from Jerusalem and they said, man, he is doing mighty works. And you know why? He's possessed by Beelzebub. He is doing the work of Satan, the prince of demons. He's casting out the demons. He is demonic. That's how he's doing all these things. And the scribes and now the Pharisees took their turn. They wanted a, a shot at the, in the ring with Jesus. And so they come to him now to this great miracle worker from Nazareth and say, we need a sign. And this is a, a different Greek word. And this is the first time this Greek word appears in the book of Mark. And it's sort of a little red light, little flashing sign that says, hey, look at me. This is a big deal because the disciples disciples are saying, we want a token of your truthfulness that proves your legitimacy. We want to know an outward proof of the divine authority that you're speaking from, that you're not actually from Satan like the scribes think you are. We want proof that you're actually being sent from God. You know, mighty works were insufficient calming the storms and casting out the demons and healing diseases, fulfilling the promises of God in the prophecies, and the, and the, excuse me, in the prophets were insufficient. The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the mute sing, all fulfilling the scriptures. They wanted more. 
reality, the, the Pharisees wanted the power. They wanted to be the power brokers that said, geez, they wanted Jesus to succumb to their desires, their need, their power. They wanted then to yell, imposter. I told you he was no good. I told you he was a fraud. Look at all you crowds. You thought he was the real deal. He is nothing. And this is what the, the Pharisees are doing. Remember, the Pharisees are not coming to Jesus as an honest inquirer saying, Jesus, we need you. We help you. Let, tell me about yourself. They already have already come in chapter 3, verse 6, when uh, the man with the crippled hand is healed. What did they do in, in, later? It says, they went out and they plotted with the Herodians how they may destroy Jesus. Or some translation says how they could kill Jesus. Jesus couldn't heal on the Sabbath, but they could plot to kill somebody on the Sabbath. So these same groups of people are not coming out saying, Jesus, who are you? Jesus, teach us. Jesus, we want to know more about you. They're demanding a sign from heaven to test Jesus or to tempt him into playing their reindeer games. We don't exactly know what this sign of heaven would have looked like. We don't know if it was a like in the book of Daniel, a hand that is writing on the wall, uh, the, the sudden downfall of Israel's enemies. We don't know if they wanted Jesus to somehow swirl the mighty winds of, with a, apocalyptic power and doom and bring it down on the Pharisees. We don't know if they wanted to cut down the mightiest tree in the forest with a herring. It's something as ridiculous as that. What they had in mind, we don't know. But we know they had no desire whatsoever to follow Jesus. They were tempting Jesus and putting him to the test. They had rejected Jesus because their hearts were hard. Notice verse 12. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said... Why does this generation seek a sign? This word, sigh deeply, is a rare, rare word. It's only used here once in the New Testament and sparingly in ancient Greek, but it used in the context that it's used, it's used when a person is pushed to the point of breaking. They're pushed to their limit. Maybe you have felt this with your children or an antagonistic co-worker or a customer that you just cannot satisfy and you sigh because you know you're about to lose it and you can't go any farther because they have just been a, a, a vexed your soul. This is where Jesus is with the ugliness, the ugly, self-righteous pride of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are nothing new. They are just following in generation after generation of not only the Jewish believers, but of all mankind who have failed to heed the glory of God and treated God with the glory and the majesty and the honor He is uh, uh, do and followed him in faith. Notice in Psalm 95 what Dan read to us this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as they did in Meribah, in the days of Massa, when the people grumbled against God. When your fathers put me to the test, our same word, and put me, uh, and put me to the proof, though they had already seen my work, they had been re- led through the Red Sea. They had seen the mighty superpower of the Pharaoh dashed against the rocks. They had seen the plagues that fall down on the gods of Egypt. They had seen the deliverance of their God, and yet, rather than trust them, they grumbled in their heart, and they refused to believe them. And for 40 years, I loathe that generation. They are a people who are, go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that generation who refused God and doubted his provision and put him to the test, they died one by one by one in the wilderness and never saw the promised land because they did not believe in the promises of God and they hardened their hearts. The Pharisees, the hearts of the Pharisees were like the hearts of the wilderness generation, cold and hard and unbelieving. But notice how Jesus continues, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And Jesus left, and he got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Literally, uh, how this sentence plays out, it says, if a sign be given to this generation, may God strike me down. Jesus is saying, in essence, a sign will be given to them over my dead body. Jesus promises that they would never receive a sign. Why? Because no sign, no matter how grand, no matter how breathtaking, no matter how awesome, would not be sufficient for them. Demanding a sign is empirical truth that you do not have faith. One of the commentators said, it is as if a husband hires a private eye to spy on his wife when he goes out of town. No matter what proof of his wife's faithfulness he brings that husband back, it will not satisfy him because he does not trust his wife. The hard hearts of the Pharisees refused to trust Jesus no matter what Jesus did, no matter what Jesus said, no matter how true, no matter how, how amazing, well, how, no matter how powerful, like previous generations, they would die in their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And God, as he declared in Deuteronomy 32.20, and God said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And the final tragic, sobering words of verse 12. And Jesus left them, and he got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Sometimes these transitional verses, we gloss over them. But these are deep, and these are heavy, and these are sobering words that they stood there, I imagine, with hands clenched, with eyes steeled, and they watched Jesus, their only hope in life and death, get into the boat with his disciples 
and they watched him sail away and they, as they muttered under their breath and said, ah, I told you he wouldn't do it. I told you he was a fraud. Why? Because their spiritual blindness had hardened their hearts. Nothing would satisfy them. You can't follow Jesus, Ocean Park, based on data, based on signs, and based on and proofs. You can't dictate to God the conditions on which you will or will not follow him. You cannot come to Christ demanding that he accomplish your agenda. Spiritual blindness expects God will answer our demands and bow to our ultimatum. Spiritual blindness makes us God and makes the creator and the judge of the universe who is sovereign and all-powerful and all-wise our lackey. Genuine disciples, Mark is telling us, don't demand that Jesus do for us. They fall at his feet and yield to his will because Jesus is their only hope in life and death. Ocean Park, as we read these words, you must heed the warning of Mark because if you don't, the demands of your hard heart will make you blind to the work of God in Christ. All that we need in life and godliness has been given to us in Jesus. The very things that can sustain us in little and much, in sickness and health, in sorrow and in joy, is Jesus, is the love of God expressed in Christ. But our hard hearts demand, I want more. I want what I want, and I want it now, and if you don't give it to me, I will pour out my wrath on you, God, and cut you off. Why? Because spiritual blindness and hard hearts. And Mark continues, not only does he say spiritual blindness prevents us from embracing what we need the most, it hardens our heart to the truth of the gospel, but it also focuses us on the wrong things. Mark shows us one picture of spiritual blindness, and then he goes and shows us another picture of spiritual blindness. And you might be surprised where the second picture, where this second tile is. It's in the boat. It's in a boat with Jesus as they sail across the Sea of Galilee because the disciples were focused on the wrong thing. The disciples, at this point in the book of Mark, are struggling with spiritual blindness. And Jesus is sitting in the bow or the stern with them. Notice verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to break bread. And they only wanted loaf for them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I love the way Jesus teaches. Jesus can take ordinary conversations about bread and turn it into a gospel conversation. He doesn't need PhD candidates. He doesn't need $5 theological words. He doesn't need deep theological conundrums that have been wrestled with the uh, philosophers for generations. He needs a bumbling band of knuckleheads who forgot their lunch and be able to introduce the gospel to teach extraordinary truth in ordinary moments of life. Parents, that's what we need to do. 
Take those moments that our children are thinking about lunch and tell them about the bread of heaven. When they want a juice box, tell them about the, the water of life. As they cross the Sea of Galilee, one of the disciples realizes they only had a single loaf of bread. And I can imagine if Jesus was anything like us, Jesus is still fuming. He's still thinking about his uh, run-in with the disciple or with the Pharisees. And, and um, he, he uses this misfortune to warn the disciples about the same problem that they are very much in danger of, the hardness of heart. And so what he does is he uses a metaphor that all of them would know from an ordinary kitchen in the first century, leaven. Leaven was a rising agent, very much like yeast, that would enable that uh, the people would, uh, when they bake bread, they would cut off a portion of that, take that piece of bread or that dough and hide it or put it somewhere in the house under the right conditions, and then every several days they would feed it to make sure that it was still alive and growing and, and doing what leaven does. Uh, I'm not a kitchen person, clearly. Um, but it was, not only did it was a, a useful item for baking and, and that, but it was actually, they had great potential to be dangerous. Because if you didn't do it right, you could poison the bread and poison your food. Some of you may have, uh, have participated in the chain baking uh, Amish friendship bread, anybody? Um, I don't know if it's actually Amish, but what happens is you get this um, a bag, a, a, a freezer bag full of this mushy, doughy stuff. And uh, what you do is you take it home and you put it in your refrigerator and every three days you have to feed various things, sort of like a little gremlin living in your refrigerator, but you have to put stuff in it and there's the directions. And there's usually three things that can happen, two of them not good. Um, one, you kill it. You, you kill the, the, the yeast and it's useless for the bread. Or two, you um, poison it and you poison your friends. Um, because you have done something wrong with the bread, or you do it right and the bread is delicious and you pass it on to your friend and you all live happily ever after. But um, Jesus is using this, this metaphor of the leaven to warn the disciples about the poison of the leaders in Israel the Pharisees and, and of Herod, because they refused to believe in Jesus and it was poisoning their hearts and against their only hope in life and death, which is Jesus. Jesus, as he was going, as they're talking about bread, has a warning. The, the poison of unbelief, of spiritual blindness, can ferment in every heart. And if you're not careful from the Senate to the synagogue that the poison will grow and you will be in opposition to Jesus. But that's not always the um, aggressive, aggressive spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Sometimes it's the passive spiritual dullness of the, of the disciples. Notice verse 16. Jesus has warned them. He, he beautiful metaphor. It's incredible. In verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
All right, moving on. Bart, you forgot the bread. No, I wasn't supposed to bring the bread this week. Well, we only have one loaf. And I can just see Jesus. Like when you try to tell your children about something and it goes over their head and you're like, really? And they just go right back to talking that they have no bread. And Jesus, in 16, is aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He mentions leaven, and now all they could think about is that they're hungry and they need to find lunch. Their focus is not on the spiritual, what they need the most. Their focus is simply on the physical. And it's like they have wool in their ears that preventing them to understand Jesus' hints and his warnings and his miraculous deeds, they're not getting in. It's as Jesus is talking to or whispering to the deaf or winking to the blind. Like the Pharisees and Herod, the disciples simply do not understand the true significance of Jesus who is sitting in their boat. And so Jesus unloads a barrage of questions on them. Notice 16, do you not perceive and understand? Are you hard-hearted? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And don't you remember? I think every parent here can appreciate the exasperation of Jesus' tone as he blitzes his disciples. For their failure to understand, to listen, to even pay attention. But the thing is, the disciples had no frame of reference. They had no frame of understanding Jesus. They were blinded by their religious past and their religious understanding, and they were being led astray by their personal hopes and dreams and and desires and their own agendas. They were worried about all the wrong things, and they were looking in all the wrong places when the one that could provide them what they needed the most was sitting in the boat with them. The disciples were dangerously unaware that they, like the Pharisees, were spiritually blind. And despite having seen Jesus' miracles and and teaching and his confronting of the false teachers, they still didn't get it. Ocean Park, I want you to know this. Proximity to Jesus does not mean that you have faith in Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not mean that you are a genuine disciple of Jesus. You can grow up in a gospel-loving, Bible-believing, God-centered church and not see Jesus. You can teach Sunday school and you can serve in the nursery and you can go to missions to tell people about Jesus and you cannot see Jesus. You can memorize dozens of verses, you can listen to hundreds of sermons, and you can sing thousands of hymns, and you can still not see Jesus. Spiritual blind eyes cannot see the beauty and the value and the glory of the one sitting in the boat. Their light is on, but nobody's home. They don't see Jesus. And here's the hint. It's coming. Somebody has to touch them and give them the sight to see the significance and the identity of the person standing in their midst. How many times have you shared Jesus with somebody? And man, you knocked it out of the park. You're like, Pastor Chris, that was good. And nothing. You're like, come on come on, bro, that was awesome. You need to follow Jesus. And nothing. 
We can, see Je- we can sing about Jesus and hear about Jesus preach and we can talk about Jesus and people with spiritually blind eyes will not see Jesus. Jesus continues, verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? I, I, feel, I feel like Jesus' tone changed and, and the compassion of Jesus on these bumbling band of misfits how many did you have left over when I fed the 5,000? 12, they said. 12. Good. How many did you have left over when I fed the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said, don't you understand? Do you understand? And he left it at that. And sometimes we say, how can the disciples be so dense? I think the better question as we read this text is, how can we be so dense? Why, like the disciples, do we worry about all the wrong things? We begin to doubt the power of Jesus is sufficient to address the situations in our life. So we're easily tempted to look in other sources of truth or other people, other relationships other income. We vent our anxiety by bickering with the very people that the Lord has given us for one another. We cut off our nose to spite our face. We are never-ending pursuit for our daily bread that we think that we need distracts us from obeying God's will, which is clearly uh, communicated to us. We seek first our kingdom And anything that's left over will seek Jesus' kingdom if there's nothing better to do. If the disciples lift up their eyes from searching for bread and thinking about lunch, they will see that God provides them with all the food they need. Sometimes it's 12 baskets full, and sometimes it's seven. And sometimes it's the perfect amount to get them where they're going where Jesus is leading them. Ocean Park, unless we have eyes to see, we will never see what we really need. Even when it's right before our eyes, we need the healing touch of grace. Notice in our final point, and um, often spiritual blindness hardens our heart, it focuses us on the wrong thing, but the cure to spiritual blindness is the touch of Jesus the touch of grace. And they came to Bethsaida after they had sailed out, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the head and led, uh, hand and led them to the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid it on his hands, he asked, Do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him out to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. As I was going through the book of Mark, I I wondered why Mark put this here. It seems a bit out of place, because the next one we do, the next preach, is the confession of Peter, you are the Christ. You have the bumbling, you have the, the Pharisees, you have Jesus in the boat. And then all of a sudden, there's this random story about Jesus opening the eyes of the blind person. Or, I'm like, really, Mark, you couldn't get like a better one where Jesus, bam, they can see. 
it's like Jesus, it's a half-baked story where Jesus is working and has to do it twice to heal this man. Why would Mark put this story here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? I believe this is a metaphor of not only the, the disciples' spiritual blindness, but it's also a metaphor of our spiritual blindness. The narrative brings us to close. This is the last story in the first half of Mark. And, it, and then you have the swing verse, the hinge of the confession of Peter, and then you have the rest of the story, how Jesus is uh, enabling this and, and bringing to conclusion the narrative of the gospel. But up to this point, we see the disciples as a stumbling, bumbling band of misfits following Jesus where they are, unaware of his true significance. Only the demons at point know who Jesus really is. And notice verse 18. They have eyes but fail to see, as Jesus said, and ears but fail to hear. Like the man who sat in this village day after day begging for alms, the disciples are spiritually blind Unless somebody heals their spiritual eyes, they will never see on their own. The ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, is not a human endeavor. It's not a human skill. It's not a human ability. In this story, there's no mention of this man's faith. There's no mention of his behavior. There's not even a hint that his faith grew as Jesus was healing him. The focus was on Jesus and on blindness. His healing exemplifies the growth in the disciples. They're in the boat consumed with bread. We'll see the confession of Peter, and then Peter immediately drops the ball and fumbles this great, glorious Super Bowl moment, and then he fumbles it. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. And then till the end, the declaration that this man was the Son of God. See, gradually the disciples will no longer be blind. But their vision remains imperfect and blurred until the resurrection they don't understand the significance of the Messiah, and it's only at the cross and only at the resurrection will they be able to see clearly who Jesus is and what he has done. They need the repeated touch of Jesus to be able to see more brilliantly and more clearer. Ocean Park, you and I are like this blind man. And we're like, and like the blind disciples are on our own. We are spiritually blind and deaf and mute. We need the touch of Jesus. Some of you in the pews this morning are like the Pharisees. And in your mind, you are demanding pro, uh, Jesus produce signs and perform wonders and jump through your hoops. And if he does that, maybe, just maybe, you'll believe. Probably not. Some of you are like the disciples. You're focused on all the wrong things, and then you wonder why you can't trust Jesus. The Gospel in Mark 1.17, or 15, I think it is, says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here. Repent and believe the Gospel. Repent of your sin. Repent of your pride. Repent of focusing on all the wrong things, of your own allegiance, of your own glory, of living your way, and believe that those who come to Jesus, humbly throwing themselves at his feet, receive mercy and grace that they may see.
and then are led by this faithful good shepherd all the days of their life because the good shepherd takes care of his sheep. Odd Thomas continues, I'll give you a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has actually revealed everything pertaining to life and godliness. All we need is Jesus. There's the idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees these signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say the mark of a mature man is not the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to go, uh, um, excuse me, but the mark of a mature man is the one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions in his prospective plans. When Jesus touches our eyes and we see Jesus for who he is and what he has done and we put our faith in Jesus, We can follow him all the days of our life because he's what we need. Ocean Park, repent and believe and embrace Jesus today and every day.